And hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Mideast News Brief. I am your host, Winston R. Holland, and today I have a special treat for you guys. I know it was a special treat for me, but we are using this episode since uh, I was planning on taking this week off, uh, which I did actually to spend time with my family, but it's a Saturday today, and uh, that was the day that I was going to interview today's guest. Thani Abu Hamid, who's a full-time missionary in Lebanon. I was planning on doing that today and then tacking it on to the end of next week's broadcast. Well, our interview went the full length of a show, and it was a great interview, had a great time, learned a lot about Lebanon and a lot about the work that he and his family are doing. So this interview is a good mix of what's going on in the ground geopolitically, what's the cultural context, what's going on in Lebanon, as well as the different things that God is doing in Lebanon through his ministry. So, hope you guys enjoy the interview with Thani Abu Hamid. Okay, I am thrilled to be doing my very first interview here on Mideast News Brief with an exceptional young man named Thani Abu Hamid. Thani is a missionary to Lebanon, reaching a diverse group of people with the gospel and has wonderful insight into the people, the work of God, and the geopolitical situation on the ground. So we're going to have a fun mix of the spiritual and geopolitical. So we'll see if I can pull off a decent first interview. We shall see, (laughs) although I have zero doubts about my august visitor's ability to pull it off. Uh, Thanny, welcome to Mideast News Brief. Thank you for having me, man. It's It's a pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. So Thani and I met a few weeks ago uh, through a few circumstances, and once I found mm-hmm. out he was a missionary to Lebanon, he was just on the ground there in the heart of the Middle East, and that he was actually free to kind of openly come yeah. on and talk about it. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. we, we, <laughs> we got to have you on. Um, so, But I want to start off with a bit about your story. Right. How did you, uh, you're an American of Lebanese descent. Yep. Uh, born and raised here in America. Yeah, right. Uh, end up back in Lebanon permanently. Well, the story goes back for me. Um, really, the, our our whole ministry is is re- a family thing. It's always been a family thing. It goes back, um, like you said. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. My parents, uh, my dad is Lebanon uh, from Lebanon, born and bred. Um, he moved to the states back in the uh, 70s during the the major civil war that was erupting in Lebanon at the time to go to college here in the States. Um, and then he met my mom, who was born and bred not only American, but Houston, Texas, you know, where I ended up being raised that. myself. So they got married um, in the early 80s and, uh, you know, you know, skip a few decades, and here I am. Uh, like you said, I was born and raised in Houston. Um, but uh, about probably about six years ago, um, I was... Uh, a freshman in college, my mom had uh, just started taking uh, seminary courses at Grace School of Theology in the Woodlands, Texas. And um, the reason why she wanted to do that, she wanted to learn how to, to be a teacher. She wanted to have the training to, to be a credible teacher herself. But what happened is that um, as she started going through seminary, she started bringing us all in on what she was learning. And the first course that she took was actually eschatology, the study of oh, wow. end times. <laughs> Starting and off with a bang, huh? Yeah. And I mean, she she adores it, and and we all ended up, you know, this became kind of one of our favorite topics about the Bible and about um, 
God's kingdom. Well, we're just we're gonna, thinking about we're going to have to do another podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. No, I, trust what, me. I love if you bring up eschatology, I will talk about it okay. for hours because it's just because it's here's what I know about eschatology, and I mentioned this on a previous broadcast. Yeah, I know that Jesus is coming back. True, and I believe that God has a special plan for Israel. Yeah, in the he midst does. of that. That's right. Yeah. And well, obviously, I know there's going to be the, the judgment and the eternal state, mm-hmm. but that's about the extent of oh, kind man. of what I have zeroed in on eschatology. We got to teach okay. you some stuff, man, because <laughs> there is a lot, and it's it's crazy. I mean, just to think about like this is the reason why I bring up eschatology is because when my mom was studying, my dad started auditing the class with her because she was reining him in, and, and oh, he was sure. getting interested. He's re- he's the real thinker. He's I get from him. The, the always questioning, the always thinking, the always, you know. Um, so anyway, so what uh, what happened is he he brought, he got brought in and he started on the course with her, and they both started thinking about the kingdom in a in a new way. You know, for us, without a, a picture of the future, without a picture of the prophecies and eschatology, we kind of, I think we can get stuck with thinking about the kingdom as just like here and now, and it's like this nebulous right. thing, like God's right. kingdom, but. But it's a real kingdom that's gonna, you know, come down from the sky, and and Jesus is gonna rule on earth, you know, for a thousand years. Well, anyway, we'll get back. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. But anyway, so they started thinking about the kingdom in a real way, and they, and that made them want to be a part of it in a real, in a, in a, in a more real way than than what they think they have been. So, um, so after that course, they they started taking a church planting course with uh, Dr. Joe Wall at Grace School of Theology. And um, one of the criteria that he put on all his students was um, after the course was over in the summer to go on a short-term mission trip to just, you know, start to engage and start to experience what it looks like to, to church plant. Because, you know, in the West, especially in America, the Bible Belt, you know, we've got churches on Right. Every corner, we've oh, got yeah. six churches on every corner, <laughs> right, you know? at least. But uh, you know, in other areas of the world where Christianity is not as prominent, church planting is takes on a whole different uh, view. It's a whole different thing. So, anyway, so um, what happened was, um, Mom wanted to bring uh, the whole family along on this short-term mission trip, and uh, we were trying to figure it out about where we were going to go, and um, you know. First thing we were thinking about maybe Spain, but no one was really uh, totally on board for that. And then we thought, okay, well, not only is Dad from Lebanon and he hasn't been back for thirty to forty years at this point, but um, also we had some very close friends uh, from my parents had close friends from college that went back to Lebanon who were Lebanese and went back to Lebanon to uh, start a ministry that we had been supporting for the last twenty years uh, financially, and. Um, and we had promised to them at one point that we were going to go visit. And so we said, okay, well, we can't in good conscience go to Spain, you know, when we can go to Lebanon where our friends are, where my dad's from, where, you know, we have right. connections. Fam- we even have families still living there. So um, so we went to Lebanon as a family. Uh, I'm the oldest of four children, so there were six of us, uh, my, my siblings, myself, and then my parents. And we were there for about three weeks. And, uh, I mean, it... I'm not going to be able to speak for the rest of my family, but it that that those three weeks changed my life. Um, that was that was a real pivotal point. Um, just experiencing, I had been on short-term mission trips before uh, to Mexico uh, and and things like that, but um, but being in this part of the world, uh, I saw a totally different side of what God, how God works. You know, the way that He's reaching these people in the Middle East is. Um, 
it really it blew my mind and um and and consequently after we got back from those three weeks pretty much a month later i had decided that for myself i was going to go back um to be a full-time ministry right after i finished college uh, even if my family didn't join me but uh wow. it ended up that a few years later um the whole family pretty much the whole family and i uh, we went together so so I'm that's, back there, yeah. Wow, that's <laughs> incredible. Okay, so I want to I want to get to some more of kind of the spiritual journey, yeah. in a minute. Okay, uh, and then, uh, but first, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the situation on the ground to yeah. give the, our listeners some cultural context for yeah, Lebanon right. and doing ministry in Lebanon. Um, so, okay, so where do you live in Lebanon? Mm-hmm. And if you would. I guess, give our listeners kind of an idea of about where that is on the map. Sure. Lebanon's very uh, small. Um, I, I compare. I know that all of your listeners might not know exactly how big the greater Houston area is, but just think about a, a, a big city in America, and that's about how big geographically and population-wise Lebanon is. Um, now, I'm living in a, a, a pretty large village um, called Alay, and that's about 30-minute drive from Beirut, which is our capital okay, city. Right. And Beirut, if you look on a map, you'll see Lebanon is just kind of this thin slice of land. And Beirut is pretty much right in the middle of that land um, on the edge near the ocean. And so I'm just about 10 miles southwest um, in a village called Ale. Okay, so, yeah. okay. Excellent, excellent. Um so I've been having some fr- fun, actually, yeah. uh, reading about the history of Lebanon. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I, it hasn't really been an area of much study for me. You right. know, I focus a lot, especially on this broadcast, and the, the uh, Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Iran, Syria, uh, you know, everything that's going on within the, within the Fertile Crescent, so to speak, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the interactions and terror groups and so forth. So it's, it's, been, it's been interesting kind of reading up on the history, um, uh, especially that, that jerk Alexander the Great, how he invaded <laughs> Tyre and burned it to the ground. So yeah. I was really, uh, my view of Alexander kind of lessened a little bit. Who knows, maybe he had a good reason, probably not. Um, <laughs> uh, but we won't talk too much about that sore spot. Uh, but uh, when we were talking the other day, yeah, the you were talking about how the Leb- the Lebanese government mm-hmm. is pretty uniquely set up. Um, yeah. And after our conversation the other day, I realized I kind of needed to brush up a bit. Uh, so, am I right that the Lebanese national government—it's not your standard fair Jeffersonian constitutional republic? <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe. Uh, so, I would not think. Yeah, so. <laughs> I would not consider. So, it ma- that, maybe yeah. give our our listeners idea how it's set up. Because I don't know if there's any other country in the world where it's where it's like this. It seems pretty unique. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll admit. I'm not very versed on how the world governments are, but I did some research as well after we had our conversation. Um, So Britannica describes the Lebanese government as a unitary, multi-party republic with a parliamentary system. So that's a really technical version, but basically I'll give you a gist from what I understand. Um, We've got three main positions of of power. Um, We've got a, a president, we've got a speaker of the parliament, and then we have Uh, what some refer to as like a prime minister. And then underneath those positions of power, you have the parliament, which is a group of uh, representation, um, you know, that... uh, for all the different people groups in Lebanon. Am I understanding the parliament, it has to be 60 Christian and 60 Muslim, right? That's... I don't know the exact numbers, but that's about right. Yeah, it's pretty split evenly between uh, Islamic and Christian representation. And then there are also... 
a, f- a few seats dedicated to uh, a minor religion called Druze, um, which in Lebanon specifically doesn't fall under Islam. Um, in other countries like Syria, Druze is just considered a, a sect of Islam, so it gets right. like mashed into that. But in Lebanon specifically, the Druze population is big enough to be Can considered be a, own. an own an own group. Yeah, uh, right. is it, I mean, how not without getting too much into the weeds? Yeah, like, what, do you know like what the the difference is like with the like what the a major belief difference that the Druze have from oh. like a Sunni or Shia Islamic well, group? Well, yeah, between the Sunni and the Shia, they they look identical compared to the Druze because the Druze is just um, belief system. They don't have any of the same tenets or followings like. The, the Islam will work off of um, their holy books, the Quran and the Hadith, but in the Druze, they don't, they don't read the Quran. It's, they're, they're only Islamic by association from over a thousand years ago. Belief system-wise, they actually have adopted, from what I understand, to be more of a Eastern or Oriental mysticism, and, okay. and they brought in a lot of those ideas from Hinduism and Buddhism into their own unique, you know, conglomeration of something. But belief-wise, they're almost um, completely, completely different, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and back to the, you know, the president, the prime minister, the speaker speaker of the parliament, I was kind of doing some research on it. Yeah. And it's a, uh, they threw around the term confessionalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's a confessionalist type, which, which is, which right. is, I think the idea is that the prime minister has a particular uh, uh, confession, con- a religious confession. Right. The president, a particular religious yeah. confession, and the speaker or whatever, uh, and they uh, they all have to be a particular of a religious belief. Right. And if you're not right. of that religious belief, you can't be you that. You can't be in that office, yeah. It's an unwritten convention. We do have a constitution that we wrote um, under the French mandate. The, the French used to occupy Lebanon in the early 1900s, um, so we had a constitution from back then, no such thing. But ever since then, especially after the Civil War, we had um, the Lebanese government um, in Saudi Arabia uh, created the Ta'if uh, Accords or the Ta'if Agreement, which started to bring political normalcy back into Lebanon after they had that you know, that civil war that wrecked everything. So it's an unwritten convention that the president has to be Maronite Christian and then the parliament and the speak uh, sorry not the parliament the the speaker of the parliament and the prime minister have to be um, one has to be Sunni and one has to be Shia but I I'll be honest I don't know which one is <laughs> that's all right yeah I, I I printed out a thing from Wikipedia yeah over there you here, go so I can yeah. read it off but you know whatever it's it's really not but it's really not important which ones necessarily but it's just it's very obviously very different here in America mm-hmm. where there's uh, specifically in the Constitution that no religious test at all can yeah. be given for any public office right and uh but in Lebanon obviously the it's very complete heads opposite, of state yeah. yeah it's really the complete opposite and yeah. so I think on on some level it's interesting though because I know the uh, Christian population, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is about 40% yeah, of Lebanon. The Muslim population is about 54%. Mm-hmm. So I guess in some way, uh, they the Christians, which Lebanon used to be a majority Christian country, right. yeah, uh, a vast majority, right? Right. Yeah, back in uh, especially early 1900s to mid-1900s, the Christian population ha- had a majority over the Islamic population, but... Yeah, things changed. Things have changed, and things things have, things have actually changed pretty significant, oh, yeah. significantly in recent years, so we're going to talk about that, too. But in some ways, I feel like that does help to protect 
the Christian population mm. from what could happen to them politically yeah. should a kind of an overwhelming uh, Muslim majority uh, get, in, get in power there. Mm-hmm. So I guess it helps kind of keep the balance of power and uh, protect the Christian population. Um, so how does, um, I guess, you know, you're talking about Beirut, mm-hmm. right, as the capital of... Yeah. Of Lebanon, how does what happens in Beirut? Because it seems like here in America, what happens in Washington D.C. It's like everyone everything. knows about it. Right. Everyone, you know, it affects the you know right. local You're, legislation. Twenty four seven cable news or whatever you. Yeah. I mean, you, it, you know more about what's going on in D.C. than you do in your you know your own hometown. Really, right, I mean, right. with our viewing consumption these days. So, how does that look in Lebanon? How does uh, what happens in Beirut affect? Your local village. Well, in my understanding, not not very much. Um, you know, the, the the government itself um, is very is very weak. The national government is very weak uh, compared to something like America. The um, you know l- l- when something happens in in Beirut, well, first of all, things things don't happen. I mean, we make that joke all the time. You know, it, things never happen in the government. You know, things that we want to happen never happen. Right, right. That stuff doesn't. It, it's the same thing in in Lebanon as well. That that's the kind of perception that people the people have about their own government. Um, but uh, it, like influencing daily life, I mean, it's really all the power. To me, it seems like it happens on the on the more local side. You know, the inside the provinces or even just inside the villages you know um we have a position um called the the muhtar which in arabic means chosen it's kind of like our, our elected officials kind of like a mayor but for a, a smaller area of the world that guy has more power than the president does Th- that wow. guy has more power than even the parliament does i think i think that's the perception that people have because um you know it, 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 it i think that really stems culturally you know because um Whereas in America and in, in the rest of the West, you, you have more of an individualistic mindset with people, the way that they live life, the way that they see the world around them is, is about, you know, the way that you live. You, so a, a more state government kind of helps to assure your your freedoms and, and your abilities, that kind of thing. But when it comes to the, the East, or specifically I'm going to talk about the Middle East, um, the, the culture is always communally mindsetted. And so local government has more power because they they put the power in in the the community officials they put right. the power in the, the the community itself so you know i'll be honest I, i've lived there for about six months and um and i have no idea what what is happening on the the national government level like you know the, wow. the parliament is meeting all the time and and i don't hear a lick of it you know I, 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 <laughs> how I, different it people, is man yeah, wow yeah i, I mean I, I, if i looked i'm sure that i could find find out what's happening, but it's not the talk of the town. Like, you know, here, if you get into a political talk, you're going to be talking about what's happening on the national level. Right. But but when we talk about politics or, or just what's happening with our government in Lebanon, we're just talking about our village, probably, at the most most of the time. People are going to be focused on what's happening right, you know, in the, in the neighborhood. That in the neighborhood in. right there. So speaking of the village and the people in the village, I mean, how do they, how do the people, uh, from what you've seen on the ground in Lebanon, mm-hmm. generally feel about the national government? Do they think they're fine? They're doing a good job, doing their own no, thing, whatever. No, they're not no, worried. No. Or how do, <laughs> not <laughs> we at talked all. about this, so I kind of have an idea what you're going to yeah. say. But there's a the, the really, R word has been thrown around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I have I have heard that sentiment from more than a couple people, and um, you know I'm not a historian, so I wouldn't be able to to give you a real good estimate about if 
if if revolution or any sort of uprising is just around the corner. But um, uh, one part of me, I know that the the people of Lebanon really hate their government. In fact, if you if you if you happen <laughs> just to, to watch, just to, just to put it mildly, yeah, no, they, they it. despise the government. Wow. Okay. Now, if you look, if you ha- even if you happen to get uh, like a glimpse of like local local television news, um, like for instance, there was we get really hard rainy seasons sometimes in the winter, specifically. So uh, on the roads to Beirut, they were flooding and and people were being stopped and you know uh, you know in, on their way their commute to work and stuff. And uh, there was a news um, a news program that came and was interviewing people who were in their cars. And um, and the Lebanese people, every single one of them that were interviewed, had no no apprehension about sharing. Like, okay, the the government, you know, that we have so many potholes and that we don't have any. You know. So, you know, they they're very vocal about it, and um, they have major major concerns about the government's structure and its ability to to get anything done. You know, um, especially with all the the crises that. Are coming in, you know, with the Syrian refugee crisis over the last decade right. has made things a lot more tense, and uh, you know, the 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 conflict with Israel has made uh, things a lot more tense, and in general, the economy is just shot, and so everyone has a really poor view of uh, the national government. I think in general, yeah, we got to make Lebanon great again. <laughs> <don't we>? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is, that that kind of sentiment is is there, you know. But I'll be honest, I think that the you know, they'll they'll be just as vocal about their hate of the national government, but I think there's also an inbred fear about doing anything about it because they just they in in relative history they just got out of their own civil war that raged on for over twenty years. Right. And and they saw what it did. They used to be the Paris of the Middle East, they used to be the place, and now they're nothing. And so they, th- I think if they a lot of people when they start to think about an uprising, they just okay. Is this? Are we just going to end up even worse off? You know, look at what this our last civil right, war right. Just the, the did. The civil war that we just had, that we yeah. were hoping would make things better, yeah. ended up actually making things worse. Mm-hmm. And so is this? So it's better to learn from history than uh, than to uh, yeah. not learn and repeat what yeah. happens. But there are serious problems um, with the government. I think the Lebanese people are coming to realize that, especially with. Um, how the world is becoming more connected, you know. Of course, so they're getting they're getting a view, a glimpse of the the West world in particular, Europe and America, and they're seeing how they're running their government, and they're seeing how their system doesn't match up. Like for instance, um, women's rights is a big is a big thing that's being talked about now because the the constitution that Lebanon has right now um, has like. 15 distinct um, laws that like um, essentially. Um, strip away personal freedoms of women depending on uh, religious things. Okay. And um, like I'll share a little story. My friend, one of my close friends, um, he's Lebanese. He's he's the son of um, a Lebanese woman and a Swiss man. His father is is a Swiss missionary, and his and his mother was born and bred Lebanese, and they're living in Lebanon. He was born in Lebanon, lived there his whole life. My friend, and um, and he's not a citizen. Because citizen rights don't pass down through the mom's line. It only passes down through uh, the father's line. Okay. So he and his sisters, they are born and bred Lebanese. You know, they, all of their friends are Lebanese. They're, they went to Lebanese school. You know, they, they, they've lived in Lebanon for over like 25 years. 
and they don't have even the basic rights to vote or do, to, to be a part of the country at all just because their father isn't Lebanese. So this kind of thing, you know, that, that was a big, about a year ago, I remember there was a lot of news articles being spread around the America at that time in the, in the American press because of the, uh, what was happening. They're trying to, to get rid of that. But so, the, I mean, there's a lot of problems. I mean, there's also, you know, marital rape and child marriage are still legal in the Constitution, which is, you know, everyone is coming to realize, okay, that's got to go. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's not right. I mean, what, what's, I mean, how young can you legally marry a girl? Um, I don't know if there is, I don't know the age limit if there is one. Um, you know, it's, what happened was, um, the reason why that, usually that wouldn't be a problem, and I think that's maybe why it wasn't specifically laid out in the Constitution, but after the Civil War, everyone was broke, and what people used to do is they would, they would, um, they would marry their young daughters into rich families to, to get a hold of that wealth to kind of recover from um, what happened in the Civil War, and unfortunately that just propagated, um, and it still exists, and it's it's becoming it's coming to the light now that okay. that needs to change. Oh my gosh! But, yeah, uh, let's, so that's let's just, hope just to so. name a few. Yeah, things that problems that the Lebanese people are starting to c- become aware of themselves. Okay, our government, our constitution. Th- okay, th- there's real problems. And, right, and so right. that's why when I hear the word revolution or or just the idea of some sort of major uprising, that is. I've heard a lot of that recently. Well, let's hope that they can do that at the ballot box, right? Because mm. I know historically, you know, here in America, I don't I don't I, I do believe right now we are in an ideological civil war. You've mm. got you've got camps right now that really want to move to a socialist communist view mm-hmm. of of, you know, how we should govern, and then you have those who are uh more on my side who are uh constitutionalist. We want to stick mm-hmm. with a constitutionalist, a federalist form of government where you have a you have the central government, but you have more power to the states, and then the, the personal freedoms, the Bill of Rights, and so forth. And so there really is a, a kind of civil war going on in America, mm-hmm. but praise God, it is a, it's, a, it's a bloodless one, and, yeah. and it's a battle of ideas, really. Um, so let's, let's hope the same thing can happen in Lebanon, yeah. to where it's, they, they kind of wage war at the ballot box. They wage war through peaceful protesting, yeah. through the media, through whatever channels they can, yeah. but it can just it can stay <laughs> stay bloodless, and they can solve their uh, political issues in a uh, obviously in a peaceful way. Yeah, we will not survive another you know violent outbreak of some sort of yeah you know, something. Yeah, you know, everything, and and we are. I think I, I have witnessed quite a few peaceful protests and that kind of thing. People are trying to make change, but um, yeah, I think you're right. We need well, to be praying for that uh, yes. that it doesn't get to that. Um, severe violent level because yeah like i said we just had a major civil war that just wrecked our country i i don't think lebanon will be a country anymore if something like that happens again yeah all right we all know how to pray yeah (laughs) we all know how to pray for lebanon not to go into a civil war and that god's kingdom power powerfully comes down on that country which yeah praise god people like thani and his family are there to to help facilitate that um so speaking of terror, yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> um, uh, I would say the most notorious terror group that uh, kind of steps foot in Lebanon is the Hezbollah mm-hmm. terror group. Yeah, how how does what uh, Hezbollah does uh, and their antics, their their uh, their operations, really kind of affect day to day life in Lebanon? From what you've seen, from your perspective, mm-hmm. or what, from what you've heard from others? Yeah. If you asked me that question five years ago, I would have given you a very different answer. 
Um, when I visited five years ago, um, like I said, I was there for three weeks, and I think that um, I, while I was there, there were at least two major car bombings that um, that happened, and uh, a suicide bomber that happened specifically in my village. So the two car bombings in Beirut, and then one happening in in Ale. And and I think they were all attributed to Hezbollah at the time. Um, now I've been there six months, and I have not heard anything like that. Hezbollah and and even the Palestinian extremist groups were another um, were another major player in the terrorism war. Um, have been real quiet. Now um, and even ISIS. I mean, I'm sure you've talked on your podcast before. ISIS is gone pretty much. Right. It's, 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 right. You know, it, Hallelujah. You, you know, the Lebanese, <laughs> the Lebanese militia, thankfully, was strong enough to fight ISIS in the Bekaa Valley when they tried to make their, uh, to make a foothold right. there. And so ISIS never entered Lebanon. But after that, um, even the Hezbollah militia, which I learned actually recently, was is just as strong as the the national uh, military uh, in in power and in number. Um, but they've been real quiet. Um, I think they. What happened is um, they uh, they 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 moved, isolated themselves to this the southern part of Lebanon, away from Beirut, uh, because. So um, now on daily life, we we still have um, there. You know, every every half mile or mile that you drive, you're going to reach uh, a, a military checkpoint where they're always checking. Um, but other than that, I mean, like I said, it's been real quiet. I haven't heard anything. I haven't seen anything on the news. Um, people aren't really talking about it. Um, I, I mean, I That's maybe great. heard Hezbollah maybe once in a, okay. in a in a normal conversation that I've had over the last six months. Um, yeah, it's just been real quiet. It's it's really changed. I don't know what happened in the last five years, but it went from being. You know, pretty intense terrorism is still a a, a problem. To you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Okay, because it's <laughs> okay. quiet. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's great. And obviously, I mean, we know that Hezbollah is working with uh, Hamas, working mm. funding through Iran, and you know, they of course have they have purposes in Syria. They mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. they want to keep the Assad regime up and going because they're partners with them um, in their kind of nefarious purposes of taking over the Levant, you know, whatever the ultimate aim is, destroying Israel. Um, So there's, yeah, it's, Hezbollah is a, Hezbollah is an interesting animal, and it's interesting to see that it's, you know, even though they're there in southern Lebanon, it's really right. not affecting your your daily life, and so yeah. that's obviously great news. I mean, if I'm someone that's working or living in Lebanon, I'm very yeah. happy that uh, that Hezbollah is not uh, doing a lot on the ground and, and all of that. I mean, that would be uh, uh, obviously the disastrous at times, but I, they're still doing stuff. But they're still you know, doing something. But, but it's yeah, you, you guys not have a, you guys have a, a have a reprieve from that. So thank God for that. Right. Um, so I want to. We, we mentioned this briefly. The the uh, effect of the civil war in Syria mm-hmm. on Lebanon, right? Which before we met uh, earlier this week, I didn't realize how substantial yeah. that is. So you've got about four million. Oh, uh, you well, you had right <laughs> right now about yeah. <laughs> four million uh, residents of Le- of Lebanon. Right, and now you have how many? And mm-hmm. what what has been that change? So I did I I went back and I researched just to make sure I got the numbers right. CIA World Factbook in 2010 estimated Lebanese population to be about 4.1 million people, and now are the most recent estimate I could find from 2018, so about a year ago, 
was um, 6.1. So 2 million people have influxed into the country over the last uh, 8 to 10 years. I mean, for some perspective, we have about 330 million people right. here in the U.S. Yes, in fact, I heard there was a U.N. <laughs> speak that I, that I heard a couple years ago. A guy was putting that into perspective for Americans. He was saying that if, for instance, 180 million Mexicans immigrated into the United States in one year, that's about the, the effect that Lebanon is going through right now. We couldn't even fathom. I mean, you can imagine, people could start to imagine just how right. much that would stretch America, you know, and, you know, right. not only just economically and, and politically, but, you know, just even socially. You, know, you right. could imagine how that could... You know, so, so, yeah, the numbers in Lebanon have gone up uh, over 2 million people, and that's really just an estimate. You know, there's no official census being done, and, and especially the Syrians, they... they uh, I'm thinking a lot of them can fall in the cracks, so that number could actually be a lot bigger than two million. But you, so that's you know about a third of the population has is is people that came into the country over the last ten years, and they're all Syrian refugees from next door because of what's happening in the in the civil war has pushed them out. Right. So right. How do yeah. you feel like speaking of next door? How do you feel yeah. like? The, the the man on the ground, your average Joe, yeah. right? Uh, how is he or she dealing with this influx of people? How are they generally handling kind of the, the social uh, aspect of that? It's hard. I mean, um, you know, in other countries, they're able to... Um, the, the numbers of Syrian refugees are small enough to be able to, uh, you know... Um, dedicate resources to them specifically, you know, put them in, in, in specific areas, isolated areas, and, and you know, allocate resources to them. Um, in Lebanon, the number is just too big. The government, like I said, is already weak. It has very little ability and power. And so socially, um, you, you've, you've got a lot of Lebanese people who are, um, who are frustrated, who are angry, who are upset, who have... Um, in, in a lot of ways, an unwarranted fear or anger toward these people, you know, who have, you know, just just to put it in picture, I see Syrian refugees everywhere I go. The whole country is 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 filled with them. It's inundated. Yeah, yeah exactly. Those kind of They're numbers. All yeah. living. The, not only that, I mean, the Syrian refugee families are already. They tend to be bigger families, you know, and that's maybe just a Middle East thing. You know, you don't <laughs> have sure. just one or two or right, three right. kids. You've got more like five or six or seven. But so, um, you know. And, and you can see them everywhere you go because the Syrian refugees don't have uh, enough money to buy uh, like things like cars. So you, you see them walking throughout the villages all the time, throughout the day. They're living in um, unfinished apartment buildings. There are a lot of unfinished construction work throughout Lebanon because projects got started in the Civil War. Yeah, everyone lost their money. They never got finished. So you've got these, these it's kind of almost like a graveyard of, of uh, concrete buildings, uh, empty skeleton buildings. And you've got Syrian refugees that are setting up there. Now, I'll be honest that um, in general, the sentiment that I get from the Lebanese uh, most of the time is, um, is, uh, is a lot of what you see here in States, especially with... Uh, you know, Southern folk, it's, okay, these people are coming in. Our economy was already shot. After the Civil War, we, we had no money. And now these people are coming in and taking what little money that we have left. And um, I know that there's frustration because I know the UN is allocating a stipend um, to Syrian refugee families if they register um, to help 
pay for uh, to help set them up to you know have at least basic living and, and some sort of apartment set up or something. But uh, so, but what's happening is that uh, the Syrian refugees are, are are getting that money in from the UN or from working you know really informal jobs in Lebanon themselves. But they're sending that money back to Syria. And so the money is just being funneled through Lebanon and none of it is staying. And so the Lebanese are just thinking uh, these people are taking up space. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our money. And we're just, we're just, they're, they're draining us of right. the, the money that we, the little money that we had to begin with. So socially, I'll, it, there's real tension there. Sure. Um, you know, you've got this huge group of people um, who, who just came in out of nowhere, essentially, and are taking up the space and the money. And um, so you've got these Lebanese people, that, and I'll go even further to say that uh, there are a lot of Lebanese that believe that uh, Syrian interests are being uh, propagated in the, the national government itself. They think that uh, there's a lot okay. of corruption there, that the Syrian government has its hand um, on, on people like the president or uh, significant members of the parliament. You know whether that fear is warranted or not, I, I can't say. But uh, that's the that just gives you a picture of what's happening socially right. and politically right. with the Lebanese versus the Syrians that are in in Lebanon. Well, it's kind of the same song, different tune. You know, yeah. here here in America, <laughs> with uh, recently the uh, uh, the statements by uh, Representative Ilhan Omar about you know mm. Jews having dual loyalty and APAC and all mm-hmm. of this stuff, and which has kind of been, as I mentioned on the previous broadcast, a Kind of a, it's been a trope that's been used for a long time to actually, as kind of a precursor to persecute mm-hmm. Jews, and and not just Jews. Actually, yeah. there there are others that it, it, it's kind of a thing, you know, to be accuse them of dual loyalty, and it's a pretense for being able to uh, kind of treat them how we want to treat them, you know, get rid of them or whatever. So, um, so hope hopefully, and, and of course that's always possible, right? It's always mm-hmm. possible that that kind of influence is going on. Yeah, uh, but we have to be careful for us to say, oh, because they're Jewish or, or because they're Syrian, mm-hmm. well, therefore they have this dual lo- loyalty or whatever. And so, I mean, you could really say that with anybody. I've got Irish in me. I've got French in me. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm a big, you know, European yeah. mutt, you know? Right, so, right, can, right, right. I mean, we, we all kind of descend from somewhere unless you were born like in the Fertile Crescent. You're yeah. born in a rock or something, maybe. <laughs> uh, we all kind of come from somewhere. So, uh but yeah, so hopefully, uh, obviously, you know, that's going to be, and there's going to be an adjustment period for a long time. Yeah. And it's always possible that once a Syrian civil war wraps up, a lot of those people yeah. will go back to Syria, which is probably the, uh, probably the overall the best idea if it's able to be done just right. to relieve the, the Lebanese government. Right. Because that, that, that is, that's an unbelievable load. Like yeah. if we took on that load here in America, I, I, I'm, I can't even fathom would, <laughs> what would yeah. happen if that happened here in America, man. That we would be in civil war, probably. You yeah. know, to to some extent. So that's another way we can pray for Lebanon as a government. Mm. You know, that they that they have wisdom and understanding of how to deal with this situation. Of course, that the Syrian civil war will finally freaking end. Yeah. It's been going on forever. And what's crazy, it looks like it's going to be no different than when things first started. You know, Assad's yeah. probably going to stay in power. Iran 
Russia. They're all propping him up. They're doing what they can. Um, America, we're not going in and invading and taking over things to put our guy in. I think hopefully we learned our lesson from the past, you know, there. (laughs) And so, so, you know, obviously we have a small presence, and Trump was talking about pulling out what we had. Mm -hmm. I think the last I heard, we're going to have a few hundred, and we're trying to get uh, other allies to come in, put some troops in, kind of share the load there, which I think is a good idea. What we don't want to do is we don't want to pull out Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, another ISIS-type group fill in that vacuum. So mm-hmm. we have to, you, we have to be careful about what we do. Um, but that, that's that's a whole other political <laughs> idea. We could we could spend a lot of time talking about. Um, so last geopolitical question. Now this this is interesting. I spent a lot of time on this broadcast talking about Israel. Right. Um, so it's obviously, you know, the uh, the nation biblically, right? That's most focused on. Um, and so as we were talking, I found it was interesting. There was a, a word that was uh, forbidden, right, mm-hmm. to, be, to be spoken yeah. in Israel. What, what, uh, what is that and kind of how, what's the story about kind of how you f- figured that out? So it goes back when we first uh, landed on the ground about six months ago. Um, part of our ministry was joining with a, a local school in L.A., and um, that local school um, requires all of its students, uh, Muslim and, is, uh, and Druze kids, to, um, to uh, their parents to sign a contract allowing the Bible to be taught in a short, like a 20-minute course every day. And so uh, what my, my dad and mom joined as, as teachers for that course to these kids are about 11 to 18 ages. Um, and so what happened is my dad was, uh, specifically my dad in his course, I was with him one day, and he was going through an Old Testament story, I can't remember which one, but he was, he was trying to engage the kids with, you know, just the, the, the details about, like, okay, the geography, about all of these things that are happening in the Old Testament are happening in this place, you know? Right, like right. We're, we're like, like just a five minutes down the street. few, <laughs> few miles from right. where all of this stuff happened, you know, a couple of th- few thousand years ago, so... Uh, so he was trying to draw him out. Okay, what is the sea that's that's that Beirut looks out onto? What's that called? And and what's the country that's underneath us? What's the place underneath us called? He was trying to draw him out. Silence. Nothing. And uh, and then he finally just gets you know Israel the the Israel right the Israel is the country underneath us and he still gets like really blank stares from that. <laughs> so later we ended up having a conversation with uh, the administrator who's in charge of the Bible teaching and we were telling her the story and she stopped us in the middle. She's like. You, you, you did not say <laughs> Israel, right? And we're like, oh, of course, yeah, I'm well, just it's on the Israel. Map. <laughs> yeah, it's on the map, right? And um, she said, no, 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 no. It is illegal to use the word Israel. It is Palestine. So we we're like blown away, like oh my god! First of all, that seems like real petty, you know. Right. <laughs> but but we had no idea that there was legislation in place that 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 didn't allow for even the name of Israel to be spoken. That this this is just this is Palestine. Like, the Jews have no no place, you know. So. So wow. that that's what we ran into. So I into. could be walking down the street and I could say Israel, and that's illegal. Like literally, the word is. You cannot. Yeah. Now, I'll be honest. I, I'm not sure that they, that you, right, no one's going right. to come, you know, right, take right. you down and like put you in jail. Like helicopters are going to show up and yeah. take you away. Yeah. But, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. Legally, it is. It is illegal to to use that word. That's that is not the correct term. And that, so. Wow. Wow. You know, and it's interesting. You know, we're 
wherever you're ministering around mm-hmm. the world, there are cultural faux pas that you have to be sensitive to. Right. And yeah, you might obviously you might think, well, yeah, you might believe they have a right to be there. Uh, you might even believe that you know eschatologically, God brought the nation of Israel back there right. in 1948 with the Zionist movement, right, Theodore, right. Theodore Herzl in the late 1800s, and so forth. Um, but if I guess there are just certain times if if saying the name Israel is going to hinder you being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody, you forgo yeah. that, right? So you can focus on really the most important thing, which is not the geopolitical situation, but is you know seeing God's kingdom come to the person or people that you're right. ministering to. Yeah, so w- that's kind of a, a something that we're going to have to work out as missionaries. It's like, okay, yeah, where 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 do we draw the line? Do we do we find another way to say Israel? You know, do <laughs> we do we just you know screw the law and and move past it and you know right. say it and teach it? Um, so I, I'll be honest, I don't know where we are on that yet, but um, but that, that that's just yeah, something I, that I blew our mind. I wish I you know, knew how like, to advise you, but I don't, <laughs> yeah. because when, you, when yeah, you've told me like, that, I'm like, well, of course I'm always going to say the name of Jesus, right? Like, right. No, even if I'm persecuted, right. even if, yeah, of uh, course. Uh, but, you know, if, obviously, I mean, Israel also is a biblical idea, it's God's idea, and so what's, what's that balance there between yeah. being faithful to the scriptures and uh, also being sensitive to the culture, not wanting to put something in the way of the gospel too right, so that right. uh, so i'll be curious when you know <laughs> i'll let you know let i'll let know. you know what we decide so yeah. in a in a subsequent subsequent podcast uh because i definitely want to have thaney back in the future so uh so let's talk about um how so i want to tra- transition we're, we're 43 minutes in but oh, this wow. is going nice. to be a, an episode all on its own I, i've decided so we're okay. just we're just going to publish this as a standalone episode and i'll just do the news next week because we're having a lot of fun actually <laughs> this is great and why not i don't have an episode this week anyway so this is the episode this week good uh just, good. A, just it'll just come a, a day late uh so so speaking of right sharing the gospel bringing the kingdom like yeah. how free are you to to minister in lebanon and I, with the gospel I like to say that um, Jesus has no problem walking the streets of Lebanon. Comparatively, the rest of the Middle East, you've got primarily Islamic states um, where the population is almost all Muslim and the culture and the government are all pervasive in that sense. And like, for instance, Syria right next door, who, who is an Islamic state, um, it was very difficult for, for missionaries of, of Christ to enter into those borders and stay. They had a very difficult time. Even if they were able to get in, they would usually get kicked out, pushed out somehow, some way, really quickly after. Uh, Lebanon, that's not the case. Like we've talked about before, the population is so diverse. It's pretty, even now, if you look at the numbers, uh, like I went back to that CIA World Factbook report, like you've got maybe 55% of the population is, is Muslim. And even between that, it's pretty evenly split, half and half, of Sunni and Shia, who, you know, they don't agree on anything. Right, right, so they're yeah, kind of their own there, yeah. groups, you know. And then you've got Christians, which make up the re- the, the almost the rest of the 35%. And then you've got, uh, you know, another 5% of Druze, and then, you know, less than 1% of everything else. But so you've got a really diverse group of people, um, which, and that's been like that for, for the last century, pretty much, at least. So out of that, the culture has been bred... Uh, out of that, which is the ability to talk, like I was telling you earlier when we had lunch, that the, like talking about politics and religion and anything that might be taboo in that sense here in America, 
it's it's bread and butter for them. They they love to do it because they love sharing their opinions. This right, is right. part of the Middle East culture. They right, love right. to share their opinions. They love to talk. We find those people to... annoying and yeah. they like eat it up. Yeah, yeah. Like in the South where I was, you know, where I grew up, you know, sharing those kind of things, things can get real tense, real oh, awkward. Yeah. All of a sudden you get shut down. There it's like, you know, they will scream at you <laughs> and fight with you and then they'll go, hey, we're having coffee tonight. Right, right. right. We're yeah. going to have some Turkish coffee and some falafel yeah. after this. So they, you know? yeah. they, they love it, you know, and, and we also learn that, you know, having those kind of fights with them it can be really important to building the relationship. If you don't, Isn't that if something? you don't really <laughs> fight with them, then you know, they think maybe you're standoffish or you think that you're better than them. You know, so really getting into like a knockdown drag out with them about something really can help. You know, move to the next step of relationship. They they really that's how they think about it. Anyway, that 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 is something. Well, I tell you something. I have a, a friend of mine who used to minister in Egypt. Yeah. You know, one of the starkest differences he told me between, like, the Middle East and America, he said having a friend in the Middle East, a uh-huh. guy friend, was like having a girlfriend in some oh, ways yeah. here in the U.S. He said mm-hmm. there was one time, in specifically, that he and his friend were sitting out, like, on this dock overlooking the water, and the sunset was coming down. He, His friend had his hand, like, draped across his chest, mm-hmm. and then he had... His hand draped across his friend's chest, and they were like embracing one yeah. another as they stared into the sunset. Yeah, I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Man, I got, I gotta have my. I love my brothers, you know, but uh, a hug. Hey, how you yeah. doing? And I gotta have my personal space. Well, it really puts. In, if you look back, um, like for instance, you look at the upper room wh- where Jesus is telling his disciples, you know, and John is, you know, resting, you know, resting his head on. I can't remember on which Jesus. one. Is it. Yeah, yeah, John resting his head on Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, on chest. his chest, yeah. and then we, if we, you know, we read that scripture, and it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. But if you really you know, put the picture in your mind, right. you're like, oh my god, that's <laughs> really an intimate gesture, you know, it is. like that. And even, very... um, you know, just a few hundred years ago, you know, nowadays maybe not so much, but you, you guys could, guy friends could hold hands and walk down the street, and it wouldn't be perceived as a romantic thing. It would just be this is a brotherly thing, you know. Like I said, maybe not so much now cuz especially parts of Lebanon are being really westernized like Beirut is almost an American city in my 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 okay. view right now. Okay. So you that I'm so stuff. sorry that's happening to you guys. <laughs> I'll pray for pray for Beirut. Yeah, yeah please. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they they have a really different uh, perspective of uh, you know th- those kind of you know uh, brotherly relationships. Anyway. Okay, so what what does uh what does your day-to-day life look like, like mm. in terms of ministry? I know you haven't yeah. been there very long. You guys are still, in a lot of ways, getting acclimated. Right, right. Uh, but what, what, is a, what does a day in the life of missionary Thani Abu Hamid <laughs> and his family kind of look like and what y'all are doing to reach people for Christ? Well, um, right now we're, uh, we primarily have a, a teaching, general ministering to people kind of outlook or yeah so like just to give you an idea like when when i wake up um usually the one of the first things that i do is i and i'm i'm talking with my dad we're working through a a question that one of our kids at the school asked us we're trying to dig through the bible to to give them a a full and and complete answer so we spend usually a couple hours in bible study and um, working through that and um uh so I, I, let me explain more about w- the, the details about what we're doing. So I, I mentioned before that we are working with a local school, an Ale, that um, allows the Bible to be taught. So that for now, that is where all of our p- primary focus is on. Um, 
what we do is my, my mom teaches the group of girls. Um, they're like middle school and high school girls. And like I said, most of these students are um, like the, the, they're, they're Islamic or they're Druze. Um, and um, I guess for those of those listeners that don't know exactly what Druze is, I'm using this word. It's spelled D-R-U-Z-E. Druze is a, is a very minor religion. I don't know if you've talked about Druze before on your I podcast. Have not, no. Yeah. So Druze is a very minor religion. Its biggest population in the world is found in Lebanon specifically. And um, you know, about a thousand years ago, they this group of Druze um, were Islamic, were under the 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 Islam uh, the Muslim banner, but they broke off and um, over the last thousand years have evolved, adopted new ideas, and have become really quite something different. But they have a, a pretty significant population, especially in the village that we're in, is almost all Druze. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So the school that we're working at is split between um, mostly Sunni Muslim. Uh, all of the uh, the Syrians, I think most of the Syrians that are that are uh, coming into the country are mostly Sunni uh, Muslims. So we have a, our school is comprised mostly of Sunni Muslims and then Druze kids. So back to back to what we're doing. So mom teaches this group of girls, and then my dad teaches the group of middle school and high school uh, guys. And um, so what we're doing is we're uh, just engaging them. They're not believers. Uh, they they know very little about the Bible in general. And uh, so what we're doing is we're just uh, we're, we're asking them to ask us their questions. Uh, we're learning that the culture of Lebanon and really the Middle East in general, um, talking about religion um, with other individuals, especially your peers, that's that is totally fine. Like I said before, you can you can argue about it and fight, and and they and they love that. But with your family, especially even people older than you or even your religious leaders, you get shut down really quickly about you know. Like I almost I use the word programmed because I think that a lot of um, Muslim and Druze kids they don't know what they believe. They're just programmed from a very early age. They're taught um, to not ask questions, to mm. just to just follow whatever the father says, to follow whatever the 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 local religious leader says, and you don't like um, you know we think about. Muslims and we think okay they're, they're they're reading the Quran all the time and they're but that's not true they I, I've learned that a lot of almost all of the Muslims that I've come across have very little knowledge of the Quran that is truly remarkable when yeah. you think about it because what we're exposed to yeah. is the the radicals right you know and the people that are real hardcore and they're quoting right, right. verses from the Quran or the Hadith or exactly. whatever and uh, that was something that was a revelation to me too when I first learned that there's yeah. I mean. Most of them maybe have never even That's read like the Quran. One percent, or less than one percent, of all Muslims in the world are the ones that n- that are that are taking this extremist stance because they are learning from the Quran. The rest have very little knowledge of the right. Quran. It's really a religion. Uh, it's a. It's a religion that's probably passed down more about oral tradition. It's a cultural religion. Right. You know, it's a, it's it's you follow, you conform to what the community knows and what the community suggests, and so it, it, at the end of all that, there's very little understanding about what the Quran actually says or what the hadiths say. That right. kind of thing. Right. It's just here. Here are our teachings. Follow mm-hmm. the teachings. Don't ask yeah. questions. So all that. Um, all that to say is that what we're doing is we're asking, okay, what, what are your questions about anything, about life, about what humans are, who God is, you know? And then what we're doing is um, we're taking these questions that they ask and we're going back to the Bible and, um, and trying to come up with a clear answer from Scripture to bring to them. 
And uh, outside of that, I mean, we do teaching, and that that is uh, an important part of our ministry. But also, I think what we're doing that may be just as important is that we're just trying to be be their friends and love them. You know, like um, you know, one thing that I like to say um, that I've learned to say is that the 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 Muslim culture doesn't um, doesn't understand the language of love. Doesn't understand the language of like, um, like for instance, my dad started playing card games with his kids, the kids that he was teaching. Um, at some point, he asked, "Oh, can you?" He asked one of the kids, "Can you teach me how to play this card game that you play?" And so what he does is now he's going up before the teaching and hanging out after the teaching, and he's just playing card games with them. And that is, um, it's just amazing to see how how much they open up after that, you know. And so what we're doing is we're just um, we're teaching, but we're we're also just trying to to show love to them in a way that a lot of these kids um, don't really know, you know, because of whether they're a part of a, a family that just happens to be really a poor structure, you know, like the the mother's out of the picture and the dad is abusive or not there, or you know they're being raised by a nanny. We've heard stories like that all the time, or if they're just a part of a normal family, air quotes, Muslim family, um, where they don't get to ask those questions. They don't get to think critically or independently right. about what they believe. They just kind of have to follow what they're taught. Now we're just, you know, showing them love and, and allowing them to ask these, you know, intense questions. The, the kind of questions that we get from these kids is pretty, it blows my mind. I I, I don't think I could expect even. What, what's peers. like the most common question you get from them that really kind of blows your mind that maybe you weren't expecting them? <sighs> what to happens ask you? after death? You know, the, they're they're middle school kids that um, that are asking about um, what 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 do I need to expect to happen to me, or what happens to someone who believes in Jesus or someone who doesn't believe in Jesus when when they die? I what think I was more interested in like. Back to the Future Two coming yeah. out or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's remarkable that these kids I are think, uh, asking these questions. And I think that this, you know, I, I can't make a conclusive hypothesis, but my my current hypothesis now about why that is is I think that when you look at Lebanon, you look at the Middle East in general, it's been through a lot of trauma recently. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of they don't have a lot of assurances. There's not a, a a general expected level of comfort or safety, you know, or economic um, wealth or anything like mm-hmm. that. You know, they've especially Lebanon. We just went through a civil war that that completely destroyed our picture of ourselves. You know, we we used to be the place. We used to be the place right. of tourists. We used to be the the place where all the Westerners went to to get a taste of the Middle East, and you know, we had it. And uh, then we had the Civil War, and now none of that happens. Our economy is shot, our government's weak. We had this huge influx of strangers coming in and taking up our jobs and our space. So out of all of that, I think that they really have a currency for for um, hope and for spiritual things. Whereas in America and other places in the West, you know, we, we, we do think about Back to the Future probably more than we think about, <laughs> right. you know, uh, you know what what happens when we die because they're thinking about it. I think all the time. Well, and especially when they just came from a just a difficult where they saw lots of people die and they mm-hmm. saw death at their door and they yeah. experienced it in a way that none of us here in the West really have. It. Yeah. I mean, talk about a perspective change. Yeah, I've seen. I've I've 
I do think about all the kids, and I, I know, I don't know what exactly they've seen, but I've heard stories of what they've seen, you know, and I've heard stories of what the adults have seen, and I know that the kids are there with them, and they're seeing, they're witnessing some horrific violence because of the civil war in Syria right. firsthand. And I can just imagine um, yeah, how that really develops their um, their taste or their 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 picture for what happens when we die. Right. You know, because they don't find a lot of. Um, for us in America, we we can we can grow so comfortable and so passionate about. Okay, this is the career that I'm pursuing, and this is the wife that I'm or the husband I'm pursuing, the family that I have. You know, and the the money and the success that I have, and you can you can live in that and be and be fine. You can they you can have a five have year plan, yeah. right? You can have a ten year plan. They don't have a ten year plan because things are constantly changing. It's it's you know that at any moment some extremist group can come in and, and introduce some horrific terror that just you know changes everything, you know, or like you know the Syrian civil war. You know, one one day their government seems to be working fine, the next day they're being pushed out of their country because you know the whole city's on fire. You know, so right. So I think that kind of experience has really shaped these people into these kids and and their families into thinking about um, thinking about these things differently. You know, with real value. So anyway. Well, you know, I I've said this from day one of the podcast. I have an. Probably in some way a real kind of naive and childish mm. optimism for the Middle East, mm. but that's it's also based off of Scripture, yep. and it's based off of the God that I know. Right, you know, and I I think of scriptures like Isaiah nineteen, where uh, it talks about that there will be a highway from Assyria mm. to Israel to Egypt. The Egypt the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, and the Assyrians with the Egyptians, and Israel will be a third part. Blessed be Egypt, my people. You know, the same place that God once said, let my people go. Now right. you are my people. Israel, uh, or uh, Assyria, the work of my hands, and, and Israel, my inheritance. You know, and so you look at prophecies such as that. Now some actually argue that that was fulfilled under Alexander the Great. Um, I'm, not, I'm not so... There's some interesting hitch, history there to, yeah, right. uh, to explore. But I do either way, it's it's a picture ultimately of what God wants to do in the region because that mm-hmm. is where the Messiah is going to come back and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. He's going to subject all his enemies and he's going to have a world dictatorship <laughs> set up for all time, you know? And uh, and that's, that's what we look forward to. And, you know, even these population shifts that happen, uh, there, there's just been so many stories about yeah. God coming in and moving and saving people and uh, just doing, uh, you know, like we've talked about, you know, glorious works among, among people yeah. for people who didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel in Syria. They heard it in Lebanon, or they mm-hmm. heard it in some of these other countries that are yeah. more open. And so ultimately... God is about moving and working and advancing his kingdom, mm-hmm. and he uses these terrible wars. Like, right. God, it, it's not like God is, is uh, you know, far off, aloof, and, right. uh, you know, like a, like a deistic God and right. not active. No, he's actually utilizing all of these things yeah. for his glory and for his kingdom. And so I would love to hear from you, like, what, you know, since, since you've been there or in the process there, what's kind of the, the coolest experience you've had? Or kind of the most interesting thing that maybe God has done or that you've experienced that have really just kind of blessed you in your ministry or given you encouragement yeah. uh, to keep going? Or uh, how has, uh, give, give us a little, a little taste of uh, experience uh, well, in that regard. I'll give you a story. Um, 
you know, I've just been talking about what's the how their mindset has changed and how you know their life essentially their life sucks you know because right. of where, where they are um there was a woman that we met five years ago when we visited uh for those three weeks um she was a widow she was older um she was a syrian who uh, was a refugee in lebanon and she told us uh, my dad specifically she told him um what what had happened to why she was here? Because my my dad was asking, what 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 brought you here? You know, why 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 did you move from Syria? I know there's a war, but what specifically? You know, and so she told him outright. Um, she she gave him the story of the time that um, the the Syrian militia um, was in her village and um, in front of her 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 husband, her uh, her eldest son, and her brother um, were beheaded because of all that stuff was going on and she's right there you know her life was spared um but she she so that's a really horrific story and and unfortunately it's not unique but the reason why i shared is because of what happened after she so you've got uh, this whole huge populations of muslims throughout the middle east and um and and they have no problem worshiping uh, their version of allah because um they don't you know they don't know much about it they they like i said they don't read the quran they they the only things that they know are what they've heard maybe in in the prayers or what they hear in mosque on fridays that kind of thing very little but what happened is she witnessed who were supposed to be allah's servants her brothers in islam these these syrian militiamen who came and murdered her family who murdered her world you know just right in front of her and um, the, her whole life, these people have been telling her, we are your family, we are your brothers, we love you, you know. And then she witnessed this, and it just, it was the switch. It was the trigger that just, like, started allowing her to start thinking critically, okay, um, how how in the world is this love? You know, how in the world do I look at this and see you as my family? You murdered my family. You murdered my husband, my brother, my eldest son, you know. And um, if if you are the servants of Allah, who who is Allah that I'm worshiping? Are supposed to be worshiping with my life? So um, she moved to Lebanon, and um, and there she learned about Christ and um, learned how differently um, the 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 Christ lived um, as opposed to the men that killed her family. And um, so there's stories like that where um, now these this woman is a believer and she's um, she's seeing. She's seeing hope in the Middle East. You know, how could you how could you witness something like that, and start to look at the Middle East with hope of a future? It's oh. like, I I I could not <laughs> comprehend that. Yeah. But the thing is, is that like you said, you know, he's not a deistic god. He's not someone who's just far away. And he and he, and I don't even believe that this war is his handiwork. I think what he's I think that he's he's using right. what was meant for evil to turn the Middle East to, to a real hope of, of love and a future, like you said, eschatologically in the Bible, there are re- there's a real hope. He has got a plan, and, a, and, a, and, the, and we can see it that he's, you know, from what he's doing now, he's bringing uh, this woman who, who, if she would have stayed in, in Syria, would never likely have heard the name of Jesus. And then she witnessed this horrible event that started to allow her to question what she believed, then she moved to Lebanon, where Jesus can walk freely on the streets, and now she's um, 
now she's uh, a brother of Christ and and is and is uh, got hope for the future and and finding real value in what's coming. And uh, so stories like that, and it, like I said, uh, that story is not unique. I have heard many stories like that. And and she learned about Christ, I think, after coming to Lebanon. But I'm hearing stories from Syrians who are meeting Jesus in dreams before yes. they even get here. Yes. And, you know, we from the States, I don't think I've ever met Jesus in a vision. I've never <laughs> had that luxury. But he he's reaching these people in that way because of, you know, there's so much war going on, so much terror, so much... Um, I think Satan is really, you know, he's he's putting all his 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 stock in what's happening there, and I think Jesus is responding with full force by you know meeting these people in visions, absolutely, and and bringing them to him, and um, and so the these kind of stories really bring hope to our ministry because it it te- it, it assures us that um, that there's a real need. These people are coming to Christ before we even introduce them. But now there's the next step of training them up and right. and how to live, you know, f- you know, further how to live the next steps of you know emboldening their relationship with him and enjoying it and um, and living the way that he wants to live and and start to usher in that kingdom that we're talking about that's gonna you know land right there you know right in the right. world some sometime in the future you know yeah absolutely well that's I mean it's just absolutely fascinating I have I've heard many stories like that myself yeah. and of course a. Uh, the, I highly recommend everybody get the Voice of the Martyrs mm. magazine. There's mm-hmm. so many great testimonies and so forth of what of what goes on in there of just how God's kingdom is coming to to you know so many different people. The dreams and the visions. And what's interesting is that psychologically, really, Muslims should not be having dreams about mm. Jesus. Right. What the psychologists say is that you know the Jews are going to have dreams about Moses, Christians will have dreams about Jesus, and Muslims will have dreams about Muhammad. Yeah. But these these Muslims that really don't know anything about Jesus, N- literally nothing. Right. Like, these people, like my brother was at a you know he was on a school bus and he was uh, he just turned to one of the kids in front of him and said, Hey, do you know who Jesus is? And the kid has no idea. Well, and even though he's a prophet, he's like a major yeah, in the, prophet this again, in the Quran. In the Quran, Jesus' name is mentioned more than Muhammad or any other primary figure. And you know, they just don't know the Quran. And so they 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 have never heard so, Jesus. So there's really no psychological reason no at reason, all that right. they should be having these these visions of Jesus. Are. But they oh, are. Oh, and, and there was it. a I mean it was a long time ago, but there was this uh lady where Jesus uh came in and told her about the Trinity and all kinds of interesting stuff as well. I mean, just they have some wild, wild experiences in the Middle East uh, regarding Jesus, is that he he comes to them. Mm -hmm. You know, the common objection to Christianity, oh, what about those who have never heard? Well, he will many, many times come to them in dreams and visions, even if there are no workers on the ground there. Mm -hmm. And so God is working and moving. Besides the fact that he is just, right? right, um, He's working and moving, not not in just sending missionaries, but then just he himself almost just acting as a missionary himself. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Taking care of business. Well, I really think, Thani, that you and... uh, Thani, I'm sorry, that you you and your your family have kind of come into the kingdom Mm. for such a time as this. Uh, mm. On the on the tail end of the Syrian civil war, right. when you've got this this harvest, right. you know, I think about when when Jesus said, you know, look on the fields for they are white for harvest. Uh, you guys are, I mean, y'all are right there, and so that that's really really encouraging. And so I, the the last question I got to ask is, I get to come visit, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Please, yeah. Okay. 
Okay, maybe we'll do like a podcast from Lebanon. Yes, that just yeah, be that would be spectacular. Yeah. So uh, is actually leading a short-term mission trip that I was hoping to be able to go on, but yeah. unfortunately, it's uh, it's bad timing. I have something else scheduled during that time. But he did say that I could maybe come anytime, man. anytime, anytime. So we're go- we're gonna have to do that because uh, uh, maybe uh, do a do a little rendezvous in Israel as well. You know, mm. of course, I've been dying to go back there since 2003, the last time I went. Uh, as I heard someone say, I, I have to go back to Israel because I left my heart there. You know? Oh, yeah. And uh, so, but it, but I'd love to love to visit Lebanon as well and, uh, you know, do, do some work there. Would be would be glorious. Would be glorious. So I want to... Um, oh, yeah. Do you mind staying around for a minute? We got to end yes. it off. We always end, <laughs> off, uh, end off the broadcast with a quote of the week. Yeah. And... I was uh, so I was in prayer last week, and I was specifically praying for the ISIS fighters. Right, mm. we don't think about praying for the ISIS fighters right. a lot. We tend to think of them as, you know, monsters. Which right, right. obviously they do act in some horrific, uh, horrific ways that we can't fathom doing to another human being. Right, um, but I I just learned a long time ago that those guys need prayers, mm-hmm. and there's testimony after testimony after testimony of ISIS fighters laying down their arms and giving their lives to Jesus Christ uh, right. and turning their lives around. Um, I was specifically praying for the ISIS fighters in Baguz, uh, because Baguz is pretty much, it's, it's done, it's over. ISIS, their geographic caliphate is pretty much done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But I was specifically praying that they'd lay down their arms, they'd surrender, they'd give their lives to Christ, um, and it was uh, that same day, uh, or the next day, I read articles about how hundreds of ISIS fighters, I mean, were just coming out, were surrendering uh, mm-hmm. to the Syrian Democratic Forces, and uh, many civilians have been saved as well. And despite their evil ideology, and really despite, it's interesting, despite their belief that if they die in jihad, they will get 72 Maybe, hopefully, hopefully if, if yeah. Allah doesn't decide, ah, eh, no, you go to hell, right. um, because there's no guarantees in Islam. Right. Whereas in Christianity, we have scriptures like these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Mm-hmm. They have no such assurances. They could live a perfect life. Right. They could die in jihad, and they Allah could be like, mm, <laughs> nah. <laughs> but the next guy does the same exact thing. Yeah. You can come in. You know, it's right. very capricious, right? Um, praise God, we do not serve a God like that. Um, so, you know, even though that's a possibility for them, uh, many of them chose to they chose to lay down their arms mm-hmm. instead, uh, as, we, as we talked about earlier. So while in prayer for them, this verse popped into my mind, and I think it's fitting that we have a missionary in our midst with us, and I would love it if Thanny would read the verse of the week from none other than the Savior himself— mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. So this is from the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Thaney, would you mind uh, reading that for yeah, us? Sure. Matthew 5, what was the... 43 to 48. 43. I was going to print you out a copy, and I totally forgot. It's all right, man. I got it right here. <laughs> you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Amen and amen. All right, we are having church <laughs> in here today. Uh, no, this this was great. This was great. So that is going to do it for this week's edition of Midi Snooze Brief. As always, you can find the articles referenced in this broadcast and more linked at midisnoozebrief.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and now on Stitcher. For you Android users, thanks again to Thani Abuhamid for joining, joining us for our very first interview. Mm-hmm. And we will see you all here again next week.